Hello, dear listener. We are looking to add a new member to our engineering team again. Ideally, we're looking for a senior level mechanical design engineer in the Phoenix area who has experience designing custom automated machines, equipment, and test fixtures. Also, having working experience with controls and system integration would be a big plus. If you'd like to apply or suggest someone, please email us at info at teampipeline.us. The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. I always walk in a room with no assumptions. I might have some experience of, you know, how to design for the head or, you know, what astronauts might need and all, all that. And I will bring that on later. But when I enter the room, I know nothing. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Phnom Bagley, who is an industrial designer and aerospace architect based in Los Angeles. She has spent 20 years designing the future of many industries, including consumer electronics, biotech, education, wearables, luxury goods, and safety. And she is also the co-founder of the design consultancy Nonfiction, where they turn science fiction into reality. Phnom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for, for inviting me. Just just one note about what you just said. I'm actually based in San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. Thank you yes. for correcting that. I appreciate it. <laughs> no Perfect. problem. Less okay. sun here, but it's still pretty. Yeah, I love San Francisco. I've been there yeah. just a handful of times, but every time I go, I love it. So much uh, delicious food, right? And the whole city is so walkable. Yes, very much so. Not right a now. A little bit but steep yes. on the hills, but uh, but still. Well, it's good for the thighs, you know. There you go. Yes, <laughs> yes. Have you ever heard of the one wheel? Yes. I, uh-huh. We got one of those recently, and I, I've often thought to myself, if I were in San Francisco, I would get so much more use out of this one wheel. I think that's a perfect yeah. place for something like that. So when, when I when I was a contracting at IDEO, uh, I actually worked with one. I, I, really? I think he was the inventor uh, or a co. He's definitely a co-founder of One Wheel. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I actually have a very funny story. I'm not entirely sure I can tell it, but I will anyway. Um, <laughs> so one will went to a very famous design studio here in San Francisco, I believe, to design their next um, uh, iteration of of the product, and uh, and the CEO of the company is a very enthusiastic, you know, action sport kind of guy. He jumps on it, runs with it, and then breaks his arm. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but I think it still work together. Oh my gosh! Ouch! Yeah, yeah, they're um, they're a lot of fun, but they can be a little bit dangerous if you're not really careful on them. Yeah, I tried once. I'm absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Getting off was the hardest part for me, like mm-hmm. dismounting the the one wheel. Anyway, well, uh, Phnom, tell me what made you decide to become a designer. It was very random. I did not grow up, um, you know, dreaming about being a designer because, to be honest, I didn't know what it was. Um, it was it was it was very um, 
serendipitous in the sense that uh, I was in my later years in high school, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do for the next few years in college. And uh, I went to a jobs and career fair uh, in Paris. I was living near Paris at that time. And one of the first booths that I see there is... Um, you know, um, has a lot of drawings of cars and, and products. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then someone starts talking to me about industrial design, which I had never heard of before. And, and, I, and I realized very quickly that it's, it was kind of perfect for me because I've always interested in, I've always been interested in, in the technical side of things as much as the artistic side of things, right? Growing up, I wanted to be an astrophysicist and an artist at the same time. And I felt like industrial design was a good compromise. Uh, and that's what I started studying. And I, I started thriving while in school and doing very well and have been practicing since. Fantastic. I love that. You wanted to be an astrophysicist and an artist at the same time. That is not a combination that I hear very often. Very cool. Yeah. Well, the thing is, there's kind of like a misconception that, you know, what you call left brain people and and right brain people are, are very separated. But I think a lot of people are actually both, you know, I mean, we have, uh, knowledge of from a neuroscience standpoint that, that, everybody is a spectrum of something. And um, if you ask a lot of very high level physicists or mathematicians, a lot of them actually practice an instrument or play in a band. So, uh, so I think having both, both sides, the artistic side and the, uh, the you know, analytical side is, is fairly common. That's a good point. Several of the engineers on our team are also musicians. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think there is some kind of link there between the technical and the creative. Well, speaking of technical and creative, you have worked with a lot of creative professionals, a skill that requires deep creativity, obviously. In your experience, have engineers been good at conceptual design and, and what roadblocks might engineers encounter that can be removed to increase their abilities, uh, to be effective conceptual designers? Well, the the kind of like two types of engineers I've worked with, the ones that were uh, two types of good engineers I've worked with. There's also the bad engineers, but um, they were either very good at articulating or organizing thoughts and moving a project forward, or they were extremely creative and very good at coming up with uh, you know smart ways of solving a problem uh, that that was outside the box. Um, so. So, so that's that's a little bit of the nature of the people that uh, that, that I encounter. Now, how can we make them um, a little bit more creative? I guess is is just exposing them to different types of people. If you have engineers who only talk to engineers speaking engineering language, mm. it's very it's going to be very difficult for them to empathize with creatives, with artists, with business people, with all these you know soft. Um, kind of like discipline uh, type of people. And to me, the, the, the best people to work with are, are the people who are open-minded, um, you know, can be very focused when they need to be, but can also, you know, open themselves up to what other people have to say about their subject. Sure. That, that leads me right into another question I wanted to ask you, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your idea of, yes, engineers, 
no engineers, and yes, but engineers. <laughs> did, did you find that on one of our videos? I did.、Um, I did. Yeah. I all it was right. Very interesting. So,、um, so for for those who don't know, nonfiction in my company、um, produces videos called Future Future. You can find them on YouTube、um, if you type in nonfiction design. And basically, we talk about design and the future of everything. And one of the episodes, I can't remember which one, maybe product development, it talks about what you said:、uh, yes, engineers, no engineers, and yes, bus engineers. So, yes, engineers are engineers that say yes to everything. Regardless of whether they can do it or not,、uh, we encounter a lot of these in, you know, in、um, in-house factory engineers.、Uh, most of the time, is they are yes engineers because they are pressured by their bosses to、uh, win the job. You know, so、uh, it fills the pipeline. And the problem with these is that when things get a little bit more complicated,、um, you know,、uh, they have to outsource talent or Do a bad job at it or extend timelines, and most of the time we work we're very um, uh, very narrow um, you know standards to begin with. If on top of that we don't have control over the timeline and budget,、uh, that can that can get pretty crazy. So that's the yes engineers. The no engineers、um, are the people who say no regardless of what you tell them.、Uh, you know, I have an idea. What what about exploring this? And they would be like, no. You know, I they. they They might be very good at what they do, but they're not really interested in evolving what they do or how they think about、uh, solving solutions, and、um, and that's extremely frustrating when you are a, a designer for one, and two, if you're working with companies trying to、um, create uh, uh, products that、um, that have a richness in intellectual properties, you know,、uh, new concepts that can end up in utility or design patents. You can't, you know, solve everything the same way, or the the way the comp- competition is doing it. So, so yeah, no engineers, not not that productive. Now, my favorite types of engineers are yes, but they will say yes to most everything, but there's always an asterisk attached to it. Well, we can do this, but it will extend the timeline by three months.、Uh, we can do this, but、um, you know, we have to make sure that this sensor is aligned with that other component, and that they, they they communicate together, and that you know might increase the cost by I don't know twenty five cents.、Um, so so being very transparent with the rest of the team, whether in when business, whether when design and CMF or whatever,、um, in order to make the right decisions together, is for me the best way to move forward. So yeah, more yes but engineers, please. Moral of the story: Be a yes, but engineer. That reminds me of an experience I had as a very young engineer. In fact, I was still in school. I had an internship.、Uh, I guess it was my first real engineering job as an intern, and I had an opportunity to meet with the president of the company, the CEO of the company.、It、wasn't a huge company, and I remember him telling me. About no engineers. He didn't use that exact phrase, but he was telling me about an experience he had recently had, where he approached an engineer about designing a particular feature, and the engineer just said, "No, can't do it. That's impossible. You know, the laws of physics won't allow it, or whatever the reason." The engineer just said, "No, no, can't do it." And、uh, the the CEO was telling me how frustrated that made him, and I remember thinking to myself. But what if it really is impossible? Like, 
shouldn't the engineers say that? And uh, over the years, I've thought back on that experience. And I, I at this point, I, I very much understand and appreciate where the, the CEO was coming from. Of course, not everything is going to be possible, but let's start the process with a positive attitude. And instead of saying, no, we can't do it, let's say, I've never seen anyone else do this, but let's take a look and, you know, see what we might be able to do. Um, so anyway, I, I really appreciate that um, way of thinking. How important is collaboration with others when it comes to creativity? I mean, can can a designer be creative by him or herself, or, or does breakthrough creativity require other people? It depends on the designer. So some designers work exceptionally well by themselves in the dark in the middle of the night, and some other ones do require um, a, a wide range of specialties in the room. And that also depends on what stage of creation you're in, right? If you're brainstorming um, new ideas uh, for a, a system design, for example, uh, you will most likely find more creative ideas if you are multiple people in a room working together. And collaboration is not just like, you know, everybody has a stack of paper and starts sketching in their corner. It's dialogue. It's sketching together on a whiteboard. It's debating. It's fighting each other about what is true and what is not. It's about f- being philosophical about things and, and you know, uh, having having conversation about what it means coming from different cultures, right? It, it can go any direction. And, and the messiness of it is, uh, is, is very important. But what is more important is how do you take that messiness and organize it in a way that gives you a direction, right? If at the end of a brainstorm session with a bunch of people, you still don't know what you're doing, or it's just the same boring ideas, then that session was not successful. Um, some people can do it alone, um, you know, be very creative by themselves, but typically they, 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 they lack something, you know, they're either an extremely good designer, but like a terrible salesperson or, or, or vice versa. And I've rarely, rarely seen someone who was able to do both, especially by themselves. How do you do your best creative work? I always start with an empty brain. Um, Regardless of what project we work on, whether it's designing an educational system for a country or a habitat on the moon or, you know, a brain stimulator or whatever, I always walk in a room with no assumptions. I might have some experience of, you know, how to design for the head or, you know, what astronauts might need and all, all that. And I will bring that on later. But when I enter the room, I know nothing. And it's a lot of absorbing first about, you know, the, the, the client's has probably been working on that subject for the last 20 years and they have a lot of insight that I will never be able to attain unless I, I talk directly to them. And and all of these nuggets are what interests me is what I'm going to connect for the first time, right? As scientists, they connect insights from their research in a scientific way and that makes complete sense. My job is to take that science, connect it with design, connect it with technology, connect it with um, business, connect it with uh, culture and everything that makes a product rich. And, um, and to demonstrate that to the client, regardless of who they are, regardless of how much they believe in design or not, and make them believe that uh, the solution will, will work for all of us. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how does the... Um 
the creative professional communicate the design language and, and creative intent to technical and manufacturing teams in a way that maintains the integrity of the designer's original vision? So one thing that absolutely needs to happen is overlapping of disciplines. So there are two main types of ways you can work with designers. One is the handoff system, which is, oh, I take care of the branding, I take care of the industrial design, the colors and materials and all that, and then I have a package. I will hand you the package and wish for the best. Um, as you can imagine, that's a recipe for disaster because inevitably you will run into technical problems while well, this doesn't fit and for some reason the package for the battery grew and this magnet doesn't fit here blah 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 right um and if you don't have a dialogue between different teams during that time you will end up with something that looks nothing like the design intent so the way we work at nonfiction, and uh, i believe most people should work is collaborating using a lean product product development process where you know before industrial design ends you need to engage with the mechanical engineer you need to engage with the electrical firmware user experience branding all these disciplines working together and making decisions together right and another thing about industrial design that i find fascinating for some people is uh, is how can how can people design without knowing what goes into the product right if I can't design something if I don't know how big the PCB is or how big the battery is or, you know, how heavy the thing is, or it's, it's, it's kind of hard for me. Some people seem to be able to design random shapes and random, you know, uh, volumes. Um, sure. Awesome. But, but the scale of it, the reality of it to me is a great starting point. Um, it's, it, it makes it difficult, I guess, for, for some creative to separate and reconnect the reality and the creativity. To me, you can use the reality to uh, innovate and to make your product even more creative. Um, but but it's a it's a muscle you have to to work on for years. Well, that's one of the criticisms that industrial designers sometimes get is that they design pretty things that can't be manufactured. And mechanical engineers have plenty of their own criticisms. So I don't mean to minimize industrial designers, but is that a problem that, that you have seen often in the industrial design community? Yeah. And, you know, I will blame education. Just, you know, a lot of the times uh, people go through four years of studying industrial design project after project and still have no understanding of what it takes to put something together, right? How many design students have never heard of DFM? That blows my mind, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the fact that they have no idea of, you know, what it takes to fabricate something, what a factory looks like, what kind of machinery you have to be uh, comfortable with. Um, I, I actually went to a very good design school in the sense that we were forced to do so many internships and be uh, exposed to the real world, you know, back when we were still teenagers. Um, that that I, I still I still benefit a lot from that. For example, our first internship requirements was to work in a factory. I I was a welder and you know assemble parts car parts in a factory for two months. Um, you know, also it made me gave me a taste of what it what it is to to 
to to work in a factory <laughs> and I never want to do that again but uh, <laughs> but yeah that was in France you know I worked at Renault uh, the, the car company and and uh, you know waking up at 4 a.m. and um, smelling burnt steel at 5 a.m. every morning for two months that was brutal but that's fantastic now, I love that right right yeah but now I know that there are humans behind the fabrication of things. I mean, less and less because of robots and automation and all that. But, but there, when we design something, we have to think about obviously the end user, but we also have to think about all the stakeholders involved in the process. And that can be the client, and that can be the manufacturer, that can be the person, you know, putting the the, the, the two parts together by hand, you know, in a very crammed space that you know never gets cleaned. It's, uh, it's, we have to be aware of this, especially when we start talking about, you know, big themes like sustainability. What does it take for, uh, for designers, engineers, business people, etc., to put something together? Is it worth it? Is it serving someone? Is it serving the planet? Well, I'll echo what you said about education, because the same is true for mechanical designers. You know, uh, coming out of university, most Newly graduated mechanical engineers don't really know how to design anything. Uh, it's on-the-job training where you learn how to do that. So internships and finding experiences and opportunities to get real-world experience that's so important for, for any young designer. Um, what, what are some of the physical tools that you recommend design or engineering teams have in their workspaces to foster creativity? Um, definitely 3D printer. It's funny because I was a little bit resistant to 3D printing at first because I don't think people were using them the right way. Uh, <laughs> um, I found a lot of benefit using 3D printers specifically for ergonomic products. So when you design something that, um, touches the body, touches different parts of the body or different people who have different proportions on their body, um, the process of making a new prototype every day and changing a millimeter here or there just to make sure that one, it, it conforms to the body, but two, you know, the weight or center of gravity is in the right place. You know, all, all those things, um, getting answers quickly, kind of like the idea of failing quickly in order to get to your answer uh, quicker. Uh, that's, that's been fairly magical. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, the problem with 3D printing is that people think it's a lot better than, than, than what it is most of the time. People are, people will still come to us and say, Hey, I have a 3D printed, uh, model. Can you manufacture this? And we're like, no, that is not how it works. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a lot of education. Um, I would say I spend 15% of my time telling people how things work in hardware, yeah. whether it's from an engineering standpoint or a design standpoint, because I don't know if it's, if it's the Kickstarters, Indiegogo, or Shark Tanks of the world, but a lot of people think that it costs a lot less and takes a lot less time to develop hardware. Hear, hear. Amen to that. Well, let me take a very short break and share with the listeners that TeamPipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, 
custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Phnom Bagley today, co-founder at Nonfiction. And uh, I have a, a question for you that my son actually came up with. I was telling him about this interview earlier, and he said, I told him that you're a really creative person. And he says, ask her what's her favorite part of her job? And I thought, oh, that's a great question. So what, what is your favorite part of your job? Oh, God, there's so many. So I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who works a lot, obviously, because I run a company, but I love every minute of it. Uh, so I, I guess that's what happens when you tailor your own job and start your own thing. But, oh, gosh, it's um, I love telling the stories that we build together uh, with, uh, with our internal team or with clients, right? I could, I could show up to a client and say, oh, we did this thing. It works. Good luck. Or I can be like, well, we looked into this culture and got inspired by this. And then we connected with this other thing. And then we, we started innovating on how to put this together. And we did a prototype. And then, oh, this has never been done before. And blah, blah, blah. You know, that whole storytelling um, is incredibly fascinating because I can, I can take something very complex and make it very attainable. I want to speak to teenagers, to children, to people who are not technically savvy. I want to talk to all of these people and, and let them believe that design and engineering can actually change their lives for the better. Awesome. I love that. I don't want to spend too much time on, on this next one, but I'm curious, what are a few of the most interesting products that, that you've worked on at nonfiction? And, and maybe one of them could be the, the earphones that you're wearing right now. Yeah, so I'm wearing the uh, human headphones. Uh, what was very interesting about that project is that uh, it was kind of a first, like the first on-ear headphone without a, a band. And you know, it's, it's pretty easy to define. And then you get into the ergonomics and you realize, oh, Ears, human ears are very different and they're very weird and they're very sensitive and they come in all shapes and size and, and, uh, and it's very difficult to work, to, to, to design something like this because, uh, not only the ergonomics were difficult, but also the user experience. How do you put them on and make sure that they're secure enough that you can do a handstand and, and they wouldn't move? And that's actually the case. I can do a handstand with these and they Really? Move. That's yes. impressive. Yeah. Uh, it took 700 prototypes, or probably more, uh, to, cow, to get 700. there. So <laughs> it was a, it was actually one of the most beautiful processes I've ever seen, where industrial design was uh, building the surfaces that would touch different parts of the ear and the head, and we would negotiate with you know uh, the people in charge of the components. You know, where do I want magnets? Where does do the PCBs go? What kind of shape and size and volume of battery do I want? And it was like going back and forth like this, um, kind of like between mechanical, electrical, acoustic, and uh, and uh, and industrial design. And it went on for months, but every day we're refining closer and closer. And between each of the prototypes, we're also testing on humans, right? And then sometimes we'd have a design that works great on someone and not work at all on someone else. Or um, and and we had to, yeah, we we had to make certain hard decisions of you know 
do we want to sell headphones with six different inserts and have people try those six different inserts to make sure that the, the one works? So from a user ex experience perspective, that's pretty, pretty crappy. So how do we bring it down to two? And how do we have one pair of headphones that needs to be touching a very specific part of your head in order to be stable? How do we make that fit on the vast majority of adult human heads? Uh, for example, if, if you if you go in a 3D file and you look at the smallest one percentile female head and the 99th percentile male head, I mean, they basically look like they belong to two different species. It's, it's so <laughs> different. And, and so you have to work with that, right? Obviously, we, you know, most people who design ergonomic products like headphones or any other common product, uh, they, they base them off of 50th percentile male. Um, and, and I mean, it works great for them, but uh, that is not, <laughs> you know, the vast majority of, uh, of the Earth's population. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, that was very, very difficult, very rewarding once we're able to get to, to the end of it. But to come back to your question, so many projects we're working on are, are crazy. So if you go on our website, uh, www.nonfiction.design, you will see a lot of um, the, the projects that we've worked on in the past uh, that have launched. Some of them sound like complete science fiction, like we have a, a, a brain stimulator in the form of a headphones that can help you learn movement faster just by stimulating your motor cortex. Uh, we work a lot of neuroscientists. It's pretty cool. We also have the first um, FDA-approved um, uh, wrist wearable that helps people with hand tremors calm down their hands so they can you know, drink coffee, write a letter again. So everything that is very life-changing uh, for the better, uh, whether it's life-changing for the planet or for humans, is what we're, we're, we're focused on. And you've probably seen um, the 17 uh, sustainable, sustainable uh, development goals from the United Nations. It's, um, it's goals that have to do with inequality, with uh, health, education, uh, conservation, etc. So it, it has become one of our, uh, one of nonfiction's requirements uh, to uh, only work with companies that satisfy at least one of those 17 goals. Oh, really? Yeah. So sustainability and social impact are absolutely important to us. Um, and we are, you know, after five years of running this company, we are at a, at a place where we can actually say no to people who just wants, you know, to copy someone else or, you know, to just do enclosure design. I, you know, I don't really see the point of skinning yet another same product architecture of, of a product just because you're working with a different brand unless you're making it higher quality unless you're changing the material the process or the assembly um, uh, work into something a, a lot more easy a lot easier to uh, to recycle or to a uh, lot less toxic to the planet unless you are benefiting um uh, communities that that don't have access to the type of technology we have here, um, I, I don't really see the point of doing hardware because otherwise we're just filling landfills, right? Right. This this is a perfect segue. I have I have three kids, and whenever I ask them to do something they don't want to do, and I ask them why they don't want to do it, their most common response is, "Can you, can you guess what it is?" I'm curious. It's boring. That's what they say. No, go for it's it. It's boring. 
Oh, it's boring. It's boring. Yeah, that's the most common. Hey, will you do this, please? I don't want to do that. Why not? It's boring. Yes. I, I think that that is something that's important to you. I mean, based on some of the research I did is that you don't like working on boring things. I mean, I, I can even see it. Not everyone who's listening to this, or no one who's listening to this will see it because we see the uh, the, the video, but they are only going to hear the audio. But you have this fun colored hair and like you have, I've seen all these pictures of you in this dynamic, cool clothing. I, I just get the sense that you you rebel against boringness and, and you're only oh, willing yes. to work on things that are exciting and fun and new. Absolutely. And um, yes, and, and more of that. Yeah, it's... I mean, I, I, I'm lucky that I'm a designer, you know, it's not like I'm an attorney or, although some attorney are very fun to look at, but, um, you know, I, I'm not pressured to fit visually into a, a very expected, um, uh, way of, of, of thinking or looking like, um, but, but I take that to, 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 to level of self-expression that makes me happy. Because to me, if I'm creative, if I'm productive, if I attract people who want to change the world, that's, that makes me happy. That, that brings joy. And, and who wants to work with someone who doesn't have fun, right? <laughs> or with someone who doesn't have fun? Um, you know, culture, uh, so someone was, um, was putting out a, um, a, a survey on LinkedIn recently, and they asked, you know, what is the most important thing working in a company for you? And I think the number one thing that came back was culture. You know, it's not, it's not creativity. It's not coming up with the latest and greatest. It's not being extremely productive or climbing the ladder. It was culture. You know, do I feel safe? Do I feel like I can contribute? Do I feel like I can grow? Do I feel like, um, like, like I can speak freely about about certain subjects, uh, that's extremely important. And to me, fun is very much part of the culture, right? We can be talking about extremely um, serious subjects, and we do because we work a lot in healthcare, for example. We're talking about people with very serious conditions. But if you don't do it with a little humor, a little lightness, um, and and it will it will actually influence the the products that we design, right? Instead of designing things that are very invasive and you know making assumptions about the people we're working with, they're like, oh, you know, this product's going to change their life. Of course, they're going to like it. Humans don't work like this. Humans care about if if something is going to be not changing their lives too much or benefiting their life greatly, um, but not requiring a lot of effort on them right it's a whole behavior science uh, type of background how as designers and engineers can we um, make the transition from one state to another easier for everybody involved i read a book years ago i can't even remember exactly what it was about but part of it talked about oh it was about neuroscience generally mm -hmm. speaking and part of the book was about depression and I remember reading this definition of depression in the book that I thought was so interesting, and I've always remembered it. The way they defined depression was the inability to perceive novelty. And I thought mm -hmm. that was such a great definition. I know that in my own life, even if things are going well, you know, like work is good, family's good, all that stuff, if there isn't something new, 
I start to feel stale and I start to get、mm-hmm. bored and I start to look for, okay, what's the next thing? You know, I think humans just have that innate need to look for novelty in their environments. And, and without that, it becomes boring. Well, people like us do. Um, but there are also a lot of people in the world that are extremely unaware of who they are, where they are, or their place in the world, and have absolutely no interest in the future or greater things.、Um, right? You, you probably know people like this. They, they just want the same thing every day, they want everything to be、um, predictable,、um, and they're completely content. It's very hard for me to understand them,、uh, but, and I'm sure for you as well, but you know, we have a thirst for new things because we are creators, we are creatives, we are the people who build the future by definition, right?、Um, so, so I hope that people like us are not like that, are not you know, the, 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 the people who, who don't want new things, but there are. I mean, if I come back to the no engineers we were talking about earlier. There's a big chance that these people are like that. They learn a craft that they are probably very good at, and they have no intention of moving on to the next phase of their field. Yeah, that's a good point. It is very easy for a person, I think, to become steeped in their own ideologies and not realize that not everyone else thinks that way.、Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do this a and, lot. You know, and- And actually, that, that brings up a very good point,、um, having to do with engineers and, and designers, particularly because I, I, I hang out with them a lot, is that they tend to stay in a bubble, right?、Uh, I have, I'm an engineer, I have my engineer friends, and we talk about engineering stuff, like super nerdy stuff, and, and I'm very happy. Well, good for you. But do you ever talk to you know, people who are into. I don't know, meditation or people who love cooking or you know, people who do things that have nothing to do with your work or your worth、uh, in this world and just learn to listen, right? I think, I think that's one of the biggest, greatest skills to develop as, as, as engineers. And, and, I, and I believe that the best engineers I've ever worked with are the people who are able to step away from. Their job title or their definition or their、um, you know, major in college, and then be open to what someone else has to say. That's a very good point. The ability to try something new and very different is not something that I do. I, I, I'll be honest about that. It's hard for me to go into an environment where like, I don't know people and it's you know, just very different than what I'm used to. That's, that's a difficult thing, but I can see. I, I can understand the value in what you're saying, and it kind of makes me want to go out and explore a little bit. So, thank you for that motivation there. Oh, it's terrifying, even for people who are used to it, right? Unless you're like this extra extrovert,、um, which you know, very few of us are,、um, it's, it's going to be exhausting. And sometimes you have to do it in small doses, sometimes you have to not do it for a couple months. Uh, but, uh, but actually, here,、uh, talking about the subject,、um, one of my friends just, just published a book about this. It's called Confident Introvert. And she gives a lot of tips on how to network as an introvert. And there are a lot of very, very great things about it. You know, she's very compassionate about,、um, you know, about understanding that not everybody. Wants to put themselves out there and wants to be the first person to break the ice.、Um, and the vast majority of us are like that, even people who like to talk. 
you know, where do I start? I don't know this person. Are, are they going to judge me? Do I, you know, you know, all these questions are, are normal. The more you do it, the more you know who you are and what you're comfortable with putting out there, the easier it gets. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, you have spent considerable time thinking about materials and specifically the toxicity of different materials. Can you share a few of the most toxic materials that, that we should stay away from as designers? <laughs> and conversely, what are some of the least toxic materials that we should try to use, you know, where the application allows for it? Um, for example, I, I heard you talk about seaweed plastic that I had I had never before heard of seaweed plastic. And I thought, what? Oh, is, yeah. I have to learn more about this. But Seaweed plastic, anyway. yeah. Yeah, there's so many plastics and new leathers and, you know, there's this whole revolution happening with, you know, plant-based everything um, that uh, is, is pretty great because is um, uh, biodegradable. Um, that seaweed plastic is made from seaweed, as, as the name uh, uh, suggests. And um, it's really trying to find a pro uh, the perfect balance between performance and uh, eco-friendliness because people are not willing to have products that perform less, right? When everybody was, um, you know, pointing fingers at, at straws, for example, when, when that kid went on the campaign of making straws, you know, the worst thing that could happen in, in, in our culture. And now, you know, a lot of states have, um, have forbidden them. I don't think it's a lot of states, but a few states. Um, and, and what happened is that people started replacing those with paper, uh, based, uh, uh, straws. And you would see everybody and their mothers, um, you know, complaining about how the experience was terrible. So the performance was not the same. And the solution that, uh, that was there to replace it was, was, you know, kind of like quickly put there. And that's why solutions like straws made out of uh, seaweeds that still have that 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 strength, um, you know, flexibility and thinness that um, you know other the classic types of of, uh, uh, of uh, straws used back in the day. But but also you know if you throw them in a composter or if you throw them in the ocean where they eventually end up, uh, they will not harm the ecosystem it falls in. Uh, so, so, but, but when we talk about materials, um, you kind of have to be honest about what's going on because there's a lot of greenwashing that's happening too, right? A lot of companies that say, oh, I'm using bamboo, therefore it's great for the environment. And then you look at how the bamboo is manufactured and where it comes from and what kind of chemical, uh, uh, you know, crazy processes it went through and how it's been uh, bonded to other materials. And you realize it's actually worse than making it entirely from, you know, PET or something. So um, it's, it's, it's the transparency behind eco-friendliness that, um, that, that is important to educate people on, educate all those companies on. Because a lot of the times sustainability happens as an afterthought, right? The first thing is like, what do we need to put? Uh, what what do we need to put out there to uh, to help our bottom line, right? Um, that's that's the priorities of, of of most most companies that that produce hardware and sustainability. Unless is part of the first conversation and held onto for the rest of the process, 
very much like the design intent that we we're talking earlier, right? If you have design intent beginning, you give up on it, you will never see it by the end. You have to hold on to it. You have to fight with everybody who is going to have an argument against it. Same thing for sustainability. So, so yeah, when it comes back to uh, non-toxicity, right? Uh, so many materials that been we've been using very commonly, like PVC is like everywhere in our tubes and in the way we grow hydroponics and you know and all that it's 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 really bad you know why do we inject dead people with formaldehyde and put them in like ultra laminated uh boxes that take forever if ever to to deteriorate like i don't understand that you know and you'll see the thing for like three days it's um it's a lot of those bad habits that you know typically are a decision made on performance versus cost, right? Value engineering, all of this and making sure that you're still making a profit at the end of the day. That's, that's, that's one way of thinking about it. And also when it comes to how we bury our dead is a hundred percent, you know, playing on the emotional value of something, right? If I have the choice between a very basic and a very ornate, um, how do you call those boxes you put people in? Uh, like an urn? Uh, no, um, like the the body boxes. <laughs> Sorry, the coffin. Yes, if 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 you have a coffin that's very ornate with a bunch of like metal and like flowers everywhere, whatever. Like emotionally, it makes people feel like they have respected their dead better because you are at a moment of weakness in your life, right? It's, it's the whole business of funeral homes, basically. Um, but what if? You know, like like a lot of companies, not a lot of companies, a few companies are developing right now. How do we make the human body compostable? You know, by wrapping it in mushrooms, by burying it um, in in places near trees, by not injecting them with formaldehyde or anything that can conserve them more than their natural state. Um, that's, I mean, look at the history of humans. We've been burying people without formaldehyde without without boxes for a very long time why do we feel obligated today to use all of these artifacts that were put in our heads uh, by by good advertising right so all of these bad habits we have so many bad habits from the straws we just talked about to the coffin um it's 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 pretty crazy and there's a there's a division of of product that's is at the forefront, I guess, of non-toxic materials is baby products. When when people become parents, they are they become very worried about the toxicity of the product they surround themselves with. You know, they routinely change all of their Windex in the house by like you know natural essential oil, whatever, whatever, uh, and then they they change all of their toxic products in the kitchen with BPA-free, you know, vegan whatever products. And we need to do that with the rest of our lives. We need to do that with, um, you know, our electronics. Uh, we need to do that with what's uh, all the products that are in the hospital, which is very difficult because in a hospital, everything needs to pass FDA regulations. And um, a lot of the times, you know, people don't have time or, or budget to, to develop that. But I think there needs to be a lot of change in many industries uh, about that. I can talk forever about this subject. <laughs> I, think, 
nine nine out of ten people or ninety nine out of a hundred people are going to agree wholeheartedly with you on that. As a designer, are there some low toxicity, eco friendly, sustainable plastics or just materials in general that that you like to use? Well, um, the so in terms of the consumer electronics that we use, um, you know, it's it's we kind of use the same 15 materials to be completely honest it's always you know pt abs pc um uh, you know glass sometimes wood aluminum steel i mean outside of that there's honestly not much <laughs> right when you get into yeah, architecture right. or interior designs or or anything like this you get a little bit more creative and that's when we can start integrating a very interesting materials um that's because we need a lot less quantity of it right if uh if you're doing a home for example or designing the inside of a, of a spacecraft you're going to use a wall of it whereas if i'm mass manufacturing something i need something that is very low cost and is accessible um in, in mass quantity. And so, so one thing that happens with material and nonfiction recently is that we're partnered up with Material Connection, which is a company that um, has this physical material library as well as digital one. And actually our office uh, hosts one of the largest um, physical material libraries on the West Coast. You can come here, you know, to make an appointment, come here and, and come touch and smell all these materials. And what's great about this is cool. that yeah, you can. Uh, what's great about this is that you can, um, you know, learn about materials that sound completely crazy. Like we have a leather made from, you know, apple shavings. Uh, we have, you know, there's many types of polymers that sound completely crazy. Like we have this, we have ceramics that that look like anything but ceramics um you know like based on the properties based on you know how much fire retardant properties you want uh, the cost availability um level sustainability is it carbon neutral or not where is it manufactured you can get all of that information for each of the materials and make your material decisions from there um you know the number one question we always get asked is that how available is that material right if i'm going to make 500,000 of an object uh, at mass manufacturing, like, can this uh, vendor, this manufacturer of that material, can they provide that for me? Or what happens if I need four times that, right? That's because yeah. uh, a lot of the people who develop, you know, interesting eco-friendly uh, materials, a lot of them are working from their garage, just, you know, experimenting oh, okay. with Very small with suppliers. Yeah, it's a lot of them is that. I mean, scaling is has always been the big problem with with hardware development and, and material development, right? Um, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing, you know. How yeah, do I right. attract um, big companies in order to change the standards and status quo of the way things are being built if I don't have the money to grow to the scale they need me to? Yeah. Well, I want to learn more about the seaweed plastic. That one grabbed my attention. How interesting. Let's talk about color real quickly. Uh, this is a pretty broad question, but what are a few gold nuggets that you can tell us about color? Like, what are some ways in which color influences society, maybe, that, that most of us maybe don't even realize, have no clue about? 
Yeah, so there are different types of colors. You have natural colors, you know, colors that are directly inspired by nature or come from natural materials. You can see that in uh, in guitars, for example. A lot of them use natural wood. You can see the grain, you can see the color of the wood, or it's like very slightly modified by uh, um, a stain or a varnish. But, but, you know, there's a warmth to it. Right, certain colors have warmth, and certain co colors are very cold. Um, so, so natural is one, um, and then artificial. You can make something very artificial, like anything that came from the '90s, basically. You know, neon colors and all that. Um, things, uh, you know, th colors that change based on like what angle of light uh, hits it. Um, so, so in between those two extremes, I would say. Um, there, there are multiple considerations when you think about colors in uh, in the products that we surround ourselves with. One is um, how it ages. So certain colors are, depending on how they're put on a product, are very sensitive to uh, ultraviolet light, for example. And they will start white, and then within six months they turn turning yellow. And that might be fine for certain products, right, that you don't really care about, like tubing or whatever but if it's a high quality uh, consumer electronic or something you really don't want that product to look that different between year one and year three right um also is you know not only ultraviolet but you know the oils that come from our fingers can deteriorate um, the uh, the color quality of certain products and in terms of like color psychology you can think of you know certain colors making you feel warm and, and, and in a welcoming environment. Some other ones are very cold and, you know, professional and all that. So, so for example, um, I love the color red, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a color that gives me energy. My living room is red. The entire thing is red, the couch, the walls, everything. And, and, uh, I, I remember when I painted that a lot of people were like, I can't believe you're doing this. This is going to make the room so small. And, and they didn't realize that's what I wanted. I don't want, you know, a sterile white room. I want a room where I feel like I'm being hugged by the room. And you can do that with color, right? And when you, when, when you know, we, we work a lot in the space industry. And when you look at places like DISS, where everything you surround yourself with is one busy. I mean, every single wall on and on the inside of the ISS is just covered with something. And most of it is white, gray, a little blue, a little black. Um, pretty much the opposite of where I want to be at all times, right? I'd rather be in a forest walking around, uh, you know, around with moss than surrounded by a bunch of ugly things. But by necessity, by necessity, that's what they need up there right now. But when we design the future of, you know, what is in spacecraft, what is in, you know, lunar and Martian habitats, I think it's extremely important to start thinking about how to integrate nature and natural finishes and, and natural colors uh, into all of this because our lizard brain is saying, this is safe, this is where I want to be, this is what reduces my anxiety and depression and, and stress, right? Um, so so color is extremely powerful. And CMF designers who are uh, colors, materials, and finish designers are extremely knowledgeable on what color has what. Uh, impression on people. Another thing they're really good at is how to perfectly manufacture the color that you want, which is a science in, in and of itself. Yeah. We are just about at time here. Do you have a couple more minutes or do we need to end right now? Yeah, 
Okay. I, I want, there's one more thing I really want to ask you about, and that's education. Uh, you have spoken about the future of education. What are some of the limitations of our current educational system, and how do you think that future educational systems and environments can improve upon the status quo? Yeah, so what we call traditional educational system, which is the vast majority of how kids are still um, educated today all over the world, is is basic was basically invented uh, during you know the uh, industrial revolution. It was um, created to uh, put out workers. You know, you put out people with a resume or a college degree, and they will be able to function as a worker. Now, if you look at people's ambitions and jobs, even job descriptions today, being a worker is not really what they're interested in being. They want to have personal and professional development. They want to be leaders and they want to be, um, you know, uh, innovators and, and they sometimes want to build their own field, uh, you know, out of nothing. And, and education has not served the, the vast majority of people, because if you look at people around you, your own family, your friends, even people you don't like, you realize that uh, we're all neurodiverse. We learn differently. We absorb things differently. We uh, express ourselves differently. We connect with others differently. And that's not going to change anytime soon. That's just the nature of humans. But the traditional educational system has uh, put standards on what is good and what is bad, what is acceptable and what is not. And uh, unless you fit into that standard, you will fall behind, right? Or you will rebel against it. And one way people rebel is by, you know, not finishing their studies and moving on to something else. And some of them are extremely successful at doing that, right? Out of all the, you know, famous billionaires that we know, like what percentage of them don't even have a college degree, uh, <laughs> right? Um, it's not because you have more letters behind your name or more degrees in your resume that you are smarter. I was having a conversation recently about a, a Turkish boy from you know, 17-year-old boy, and he was very worried about appearing, um, you know, to be the most the smartest person in the room. And I'm like, why? What does smart mean anyway? Like, he was very worried about the IQ. And IQ is just, uh, it's just an invention that's based on not much and uh, <laughs> is extremely random and is not even applicable to all cultures at once. So so let's just forget about that. Now, intellectual quotient is, is you know, important at some point, right? If... Um, you know, you need to understand a certain set of logic, but how about emotional intelligence, social intelligence, you know, all those skills that are actually going to be more helpful for you to find a path that works for you. So anyway, uh, we're currently redesigning the educational system of you know, Singapore and Japan. And in doing that, we're completely flipping the system on its head and taking inspiration from other smaller groups uh, that, that are a little bit more recent. For example, the Montessori, the Waldorf type systems that are a little bit more you know, project-based instead of discipline-based. Um, uh, education are, 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 are more useful. But on top of that, we are integrating technologies and experiences that can help uh, children and teenagers find the way that works for them. 
right? It's not because uh, some someone somewhere said that you know gaming was bad for you. Uh, that it's going to be bad for every child. You know, some people, some some children learn very well from playing, right? And even the the idea of playing, like integrating unstructured play in the schedule of a child, seems crazy right now. I mean, I see children like going from you know appointment to appointment. That was before COVID, obviously, and and just being dropped off at different activities all the time. Like, what kind of childhood is that? You know, when I was a kid, it was like we're outside playing with a stick, right? Um, that unstructured play that I don't have to play. I just play because I'm a child, you know, is extremely important in development of, of, of children. And that's what I love about the, the world we live in right now. We're starting to, to personalize everything thanks to AI, machine learning, thanks to the fact that we manufacture things at much lower quantity and um, you know personalization of color, texture and all that. And that's a wonderful time to be in because that's when we are starting to uh, stop generalizing about generations, stop generalizing about, oh, all the people with disabilities want that. Well, no, you know. Within the group of people with disabilities, you have people with certain tastes, people with certain goals, people with certain ambitions, and we have to respect that, right? Um, and and now with with all the technology we have today, we're finally, you know, starting to crack the door and and really making our designs, our engineering work serve people for the long term. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Phenom, how can people get a hold of you? Um, I'm pretty active on, uh, well, you can find me on LinkedIn. You know, type in Phenom Bagley and it is only one. <laughs> um, I, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Phenom Bagley. Um, I don't have a personal Instagram, but uh, we have a company Instagram. It's at, I think, nonfiction.design. Uh, and uh, earlier during this uh, this talk, uh, we were talking about YouTube channel. So if you go on YouTube and type in nonfiction design, you will find all of our videos. So we come up with a new video every week where we talk about design, demystifying it, and the future of everything. You can also find me a lot on Clubhouse these days. Um, I am talking a lot about space, robots, and uh, and the future of everything. Terrific. Okay, well, Phnom, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for uh, asking such uh, sensible questions. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.